Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and we've got a new show again for you this week. Uh, I've got a bunch of things I want to catch you up on. Hopefully, we'll have an interview set up uh, for next week. I'm in a little bit of trouble getting that scheduled, but I hope to have that ready for you next week. Uh, should be very interesting. In the meantime, uh, let's go over some news. You may have noticed, hopefully not, but may have noticed that Firefox was having some trouble with uh, plugins over the weekend. With any kind of luck, by the time you hear this, it will all be fixed, but I'll talk about what happened there and what you can do in the meantime. Uh, talk about a scam uh, with Google Ads um, on both mobile and desktop, where the ads were masquerading as helplines for things like PayPal and Amazon and eBay. Uh, and trying to get you to call some numbers, and of course those numbers weren't real. We'll talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about another, yet another huge data breach. Um, actually, this one hopefully was caught uh, in time. We're not really sure if anyone's accessed this data. And nevertheless, it looks like data from up to 80 million U.S. households was found just lying around unprotected. And it was really very interesting. So not really sure what was going on there. We'll talk about that. Then I'm going to tell you about a tool from Princeton that uh, is being used to help snitch on the snitchers, basically. Uh, it's monitoring all the various IoT devices that we have in our houses now and what they're really up to. And this is something we've talked about multiple times in the show, usually with Amazon Echo products and things like that. But uh, all your IoT devices potentially could be doing things that you don't know what they're doing. Uh, and Princeton's come up with a tool to help figure that out. So we'll talk about that. And finally, we're going to talk about some health apps, some mental health apps that have been caught sharing data with advertisers. And it's really pretty ugly. Uh, I, again, not really surprised, unfortunately, but still really angry and disappointed. So uh, plenty to cover in news this week. So let's get into it. First up, if you use Firefox, and hopefully you do, this is the, the browser, the web browser that I often recommend on this show and in the book and everywhere I can, everywhere I can. It's really my it's really my favorite browser. Much more private than Chrome, certainly, um, and very secure. Uh, however, one of those security practices actually kind of bit him in the butt this weekend. Uh, you may have noticed if you use the your browser over the weekend, if you use the plugins I recommend for you, like LastPass and uBlock Origin and Privacy Badger and HTTPS Everywhere, that all those plugins were disabled. And there was a kind of a weird pop-up message that, from Firefox explaining why they were disabled, but not really being terribly helpful. So uh, let me read a little bit of an article from Engadget, and then we'll talk about what you can do. Many Firefox users around the world are browsing without their usual set of extensions after they suddenly stopped working earlier this evening. And of course, uh, that would be Friday, uh, last Friday. The event occurred as the clock rolled over on UTC, or Coordinated Universal Time, a.k.a. GMT, or Greenwich Mean Time, and impacted users quickly narrowed it down to, quote, expiration of intermediate signing cert, unquote, as described on Mozilla's bug tracker. This same problem almost happened three years ago, but Armageddon, add-on, get it, add-on, Armageddon, Armageddon 2.0 has torn things up once again. In a statement provided to Engadget, product lead Kev Needham said, quote, 
We're sorry that there is currently an issue where existing and new add-ons are failing to run or be installed on Firefox. We know that the, we know what the issue is and are working hard to restore add-on functionality to Firefox as soon as possible. We'll continue to provide updates via our Twitter channels. Please bear with us while we get the problem fixed." Unquote. Now the article goes on, but at this point hopefully it's all taken care of. The final update on Saturday uh, the last update in this article from Saturday says the team has announced a hotfix is rolling out now. It's applied in the background, so you shouldn't have to do anything to receive it. However, to make sure you get it right away, you can follow these instructions. And they actually have had various instructions. But the one I want to read to you, though, in particular, the one there were several. The one that worked for me uh, was the following. If for some reason you are still seeing that your uh, plugins aren't working, actually, I would just try restarting Firefox. It might be that you've got a pending Firefox update that hasn't been applied yet, so make sure you've got the latest and greatest Firefox, and the easiest way to do that is to quit Firefox and restart it. Um, but if you do that, and for some reason this is still not working for you, uh, and your basically your plugins aren't loading, in particular, LastPass would be one you definitely you would definitely want. Uh, you can go to Firefox Preferences, uh, look under the Privacy and Security Settings, and you got to kind of scroll around or maybe search on the web page. Look for the thing that says, quote, allow Firefox to install and run studies, unquote. Uh, and I had personally unchecked that whole, there's like a grouping of things there. And I had unchecked that whole grouping for me personally. But for this one instance, because I wanted to use my plugins over the weekend, I turned it back on. Uh, and once you get the fix from Firefox, you can turn this back off and everything should still be fine. Now, what happened? So... Certificates are security mechanisms used to verify software. And basically what it says is you sign, you can sign software using, and we've talked about this previously on the show, public key and private key encryption. You can do these kind of fancy techniques that allow you to say, this software is legit and there are there's a chain of what we call certificate authorities, uh, whereby we, it's called a trust chain, so... Uh, you sign it with a certain key, and then that key is signed by someone else and further up the chain until you finally get to a root CA or a root certificate authority. And your computer is designed to, without you ever having to do anything, it's built-in certificate authorities that it, that it respects. And behind the scenes, without you ever knowing it, these, this, these bits of software that are signed uh, are checked against these certificates. Uh, by the various chains of certificate authorities, and somewhere along the line, because these certificates are not are not purposefully are not set to last forever, they have expiration dates. And somewhere along the line, um, Firefox, Mozilla had a had a one along the chain. They had a certificate that was that expired. Uh, they didn't do their proper maintenance. They didn't get the certificates updated in time, and because of that, the signed plugins, the plugins that were running in, in Firefox ran out, the time ran out. Uh, basically the, the period for which they were authorized to run expired. And so because of that, Firefox did the right, the, the, the browser did the right thing and said, Hey, these certificates are expired. I can't let this software run anymore. So it was a mistake. Um, it wasn't really a security problem. Uh, it's just kind of an annoyance because we want these things. We use these things. We depend on these things. Uh, and someone someone forgot to uh, re reauthorize this software. So anyway, hopefully by the time you hear this, uh, everything will be resolved and it will be a non-issue. However, um, if not, if you're solving issues, again, try restarting Firefox first to get the latest and greatest software. It should update automatically, but just in case it doesn't, uh, restarting the browser should uh, cause that to occur. Uh, you could also go to, I think, Firefox About Help or something like that or uh, check for updates. 
Uh, and somewhere in there, it'll tell you if you've got a pending update or not. And again, it'll, I think it just tells you to restart Firefox. So, uh, And if worst case, if that doesn't work, uh, use that preferences trick I told you where you could allow studies. And I guess that kind of allows um, uh, hot fixes and things to get deployed faster. All right, next up, uh, a scam. There's so many. Uh, a recent scam with Google ads. And these ads are masquerading as help. Uh, helplines for you know common services like PayPal and Amazon and eBay, um, and you know because of the way Google works, it they pay you know they allow companies to pay to be inserted into your search results. So if you went and go if you went to search on PayPal or Amazon or or eBay and Google search, the top thing you see is generally not the top search result from Google. It's an ad, and you can tell that. Because if you look very closely, there's this little tiny thing that says ad right next to it. I wish they would make it more obvious, but they don't want to make it too obvious because then you'll never look at it. Uh, they want to kind of make it look just like a regular search result, but they at least do tag it with this small little icon that says ad. Um, anyway, and so you would search on eBay, for example, and what would come up would be uh, at the very top, a little ad that says www.ebay.com. And next to it would be uh, an 800 number of some sort for support. And it might try to, you know, in that ad, say, we've detected a problem or something, please call support. And of course, when you call that number, you know, someone at the other end says, thank you for calling eBay support. We'll be with you in a minute or whatever. And then they try to get you to pay money for support. Let me read you a little bit of this article from Bleeping Computer about this new scam. Scammers are creating ads in Google search results that pretend to be customer support numbers for popular sites such as Amazon, PayPal, and eBay. When called, scammers, can pre uh, scammers will pretend to be from the associated company and state they need a code from a Google Play gift card before they can help. Bleepy Computer was alerted to these scam ads in the Google search results a few weeks ago from a security researcher who wishes to remain anonymous. Since then, we have observed multiple scam ad campaigns pretending to be tech support hotlines for well-known companies. If a person called these fake support numbers for a problem, victims will be greeted from, with a person who states that they work for the associated company. In our test, we called a number uh, being shown for PayPal, and the call was answered by someone stating, thank you for calling PayPal support. They then proceeded to tell me that my account had problems that could only be, that could only be fixed if we sent them a code on the back of a Google Play card. When questioned as to why we need a, uh, to pay money to fix an issue, they said PayPal would reimburse me for the cost of the card. Actually, it goes on. I pretty much, I've pretty much said what happens here. So, obviously, a Google Pay card is kind of basically like a, a gift card. So they're asking for money to help you fix your problem, and then claiming that that money be, will be refunded. Obviously, none of that is true. Uh, Bleepy Computer did uh, the article did say they went on to contact Google, and Google just kind of gave a standard stock answer, like, you know, that's against policy. We remove these whenever possible. But you know, again, Google's an ad company. That's how they make their money, um, and so. These kind of ads slip through the cracks. Somebody buys an ad, they can't review them all, uh, and it's a scam. So be careful. Uh, watch for these Google search results. They look a little bit more realistic on the mobile phone than they do on the desktop app, um, browser app. But nevertheless, basically just ignore the ones that come up first and look at the one, go past the one that say ad and move on. Or use DuckDuckGo for your search engine and this will not be an issue. All right, next up, yet another data breach or maybe a potential data breach. And again, Bleepy Computer was on top of this, and it was. Uh, let me just read the article, and, we'll, and then we'll talk about it. So, again, from Bleepy Computer, a wonderful site, says, 
A publicly accessible database with information on roughly 80 million American households has been discovered on a Microsoft cloud server, representing more than half of the total number of U.S. households. While at the moment there is no information pointing at who is the company who left 24 gigabytes worth of data exposed, VPN Mentor's research team, in collaboration with hacktivists Noam Rotem and Ran Lokar, who found the unprotected database on a Microsoft cloud server, are currently in the process of identifying its owners. The fact that all entries found in the database contain the member code and score point to the huge collection of information belonging to a service which used it as member track as a member tracking tool. As described in the report published by Rotem and Lokar, the leaked database was used to organize the information into a household format instead of focusing on the individuals as most such data collections do. The leaked data includes full addresses including street addresses, cities, counties, states, and zip codes, exact longitude and latitude, full names including first, last, and middle initial, age and date of birth. While there's a lot of data available in human-readable form, the database also contains coded info presented in the form of internally assigned numerical values related to title, gender, marital status, income, homeowner status, and dwelling type. Quote, this isn't the first time a huge database has been breached. However, we believe that's the first time a breach of this size has included people's names, addresses, and income, unquote, stated Rotom and Lokar. Again, quoting, this open database is a goldmine for identity thieves and other attackers, unquote. Even though data breaches have become very common, the leaked database stands out for at least a couple reasons, not taking into account the fact that 80 million households translates into a huge number of individuals being affected, somewhere in the range of hundreds of millions of people having their addresses, locations, and dates of birth exposed. First of all, all the entries stored in the database are for people under 40, this being the only item of information connecting all the individuals, part of the approximately 80 million households. Secondly, every entry in the leaked collection of households comes with an income and homeowner tax which could be related to an internal ranking system, a tax bracket, or an actual amount. However, as the VPN Mentor report states, this would mean that the info found in the publicly accessible database is owned by a mortgage company or insurance company. Despite this, there is no specific information on payments, social security numbers, or account numbers, something that such a collection of data should include. Okay, so that's the end of my little quote from the article. Um, So it's, first of all, it's vast. It covers a lot of people. Uh, it's interesting in the way it's kind of broken down, especially this whole thing about the only only people under 40. It's done by household, not by individual. Um, you know, we're trying to get clues as to what this might mean. Now, it did say it was weird that this database didn't contain some other info. I think it's possible that this could be just one of many databases. There could have been another database where maybe they thought more secure info, like social security numbers and things might be kept separate. Uh, so it's possible this is just one of another, uh, one part of, a, of an overall database. Uh, It's also just weird that they can't figure out (laughs) who this data belongs to. Uh, You'd think you could just go to Microsoft and say, uh, hey, who owns this server? Um, But I don't know if they haven't done that or if they have and Microsoft has not said. I'm not sure. But, you know, I guess the takeaway for you is this is yet another case where your information, that's 80 million households in the U.S. If you live in the United States, there's a darn good chance your info is in there. Um, Though apparently, again, it's only for people under 40. Nevertheless, what do you do? Like, there's not much you can do. Someone else screwed up with your data. But, you know, let's stock answer for things like this. You know, watch your credit reports. Get your credit reports on a schedule. You can get one from each of the three main branches once once a year, TransUnion, Experian, and um, Equifax. What I generally do is I spread those out so I can kind of get them throughout the year. I'll get one in January, one in May, and one in September um, and just rotate through them. Uh, you can use services like uh, Credit Karma to kind of keep an eye on things. You should also really, honestly, now that it's free, 
you should freeze your credit everywhere unless you're the kind of person that needs to be getting credit all the time. I don't know who that would be, but if you're, you know, if you're in the middle of getting some credit cards or in buying a house, um, you know, then you may find that that's a problem. Or honestly, credit reports now are used for lots of things. Like they're used by employers when they're evaluating uh, hiring people. Sometimes they're used by utility companies when you're trying to set up new service. So they're used for lots of things. But when you can when you can do it, uh, you should definitely freeze your credit. If, at a bare minimum, uh, you should put a fraud alert on your accounts, both of which are free. Fraud alerts uh, need to be renewed. Uh, credit freezes can be thawed temporarily so that when you do find that you need to get some new credit, uh, you can turn that off uh, temporarily and then and lock it back down. Um, but at least that would, you know, it, it would prevent somebody from getting new credit in your name. It doesn't really prevent somebody from abusing credit cards and bank accounts you already have if they can convince your banks or credit card companies that they are you with all this vast treasure trove of information. But uh, that's where we're at today. You got to do what you can. All right, next up, I want to talk really quickly about a cool tool that I ran across on the web. And we've talked on the show multiple times about how the Internet of Things and all these devices we're putting in our house are spying on us and some could be spying on us in some ways. Uh, all these things that are connected to the Internet are taking the opportunity to learn as much about us as they can. And some of these things can be controlled with privacy policies and setting switches and settings and preferences. Others can't. Um, but particularly when it comes to the Internet of Things, we've talked about the Amazon Echo devices and how they're constantly listening. In fact, we talked about that in last week's show, I believe. So... As I said, and I've got these in my house, I'm a big privacy nut, uh, and yet I still have them. Why? Um, because I trust that there are people like this Princeton group and others out there that are keeping an eagle eye on these devices and helping helping to find out what they really are doing and would raise a red flag if they find them doing something nefarious. And this is a good example of that. So these Princeton researchers have come up with a really cool tool that currently only works for Mac, but Windows is coming soon. Uh, that you can run on your computer, and after a little bit of quick and easy setup, what these things do is they monitor all of your network traffic. And what they do is they're looking for these Internet of Things devices. You know, heck, at this point, you know, <laughs> your toaster, your refrigerator, your TV, uh, your Amazon Echo devices, your Google Home devices, uh, all these things are that are now connected to the Internet. Who knows what they're doing and who they're talking to? Well, this app does, or at least tries to. And it monitors all your network traffic, and it looks for recognizable patterns, recognizable devices, and kind of keeps track of what they're doing. I don't recommend this for everybody. I may do it myself, and I'll tell you why I may uh, is is why I may do it, and not for sure do it. Um, basically, you're participating in a study, so you're actually again giving up data. Um, but in this case, we're hopefully giving it to the good guys. Um, the the source code for the tool itself is open is open. It, that is, it's an open source tool, so uh, other software people like myself uh, and other organizations like perhaps the EFF and the ACLU and uh, Epic and some of these other companies can actually review the code and make sure it's actually doing what they say it's doing. But in the background, what this thing does is it, is it runs in your network and it watches network traffic and it looks for these devices and kind of pays attention to where those devices are going out on the internet. So if you have an Amazon Echo device, you would kind of expect it to talk to Amazon every once in a while. Um, even if you're not saying anything, even if you don't use the wake word, you know, the A-L-E-X-A word, even if you don't say that word out loud, every once in a while, it still has to check back with home, check in with the mothership and say, hey, is there a software update? Um, is there anything else I need to know? Uh, there are valid reasons why every once in a while it would touch base with home. But what they found out is some of these devices aren't calling home. They're calling other places, too. Uh, so they're basically doing a study uh, with the help of this tool that they're making freely available. Um 
to monitor these devices and see where they're talking, uh, where they're, who they're talking to and what they're and what kind of things they're saying. Now, some of that traffic is probably encrypted, but they can still get an idea who they're talking to, how long, how often, you know, and if, if you buy uh, a television and that television is talking to Facebook, that could be a problem. <laughs> that might be something you'd want to know. So anyway, uh, I just thought it was really cool that they're doing this. Um, if you want to look it up online, you can go uh, just search for Princeton IoT Inspector. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to that as well. Uh, if you'd like to try this yourself, uh, I may do it. The one reason I may not is I'd actually have to find a Mac, uh, a spare Mac in my house and put it on my guest network because I put all of my Internet of Things devices on my guest network, not my primary network. Uh, for this tool to work, it would have to be on the same network. So to kind of isolate those devices in my network and keep them from, if, you know, for some reason they're compromised or if they get, if they try to snoop around into other devices on my network, I, I segregate them. I compartmentalize them. I put them somewhere else. And, uh, so they can't get to my juicy home computers and file servers and things, um, uh, in case they were ever compromised or go rogue in some way. So anyway, I would have to, I'll also have to see if I can find myself, if they had this on Linux, I could put this on a Raspberry Pi. A uh, really cool $35 computer that I could slap on my network. But in the meantime, I'll have to see if I can liberate um, an old Mac somewhere and, and throw that on my guest network, and I'll gladly participate in this in this uh, project. All right, last up. read a really kind of disturbing article in The Verge uh, about a study done in the JAMA Network Open Journal about they looked at 36 different mental health apps on the iOS and um, uh, the Apple Store and the Google Play Store for depression and smoking cessation. And they found that many, most of these apps were not only sending data back to the original company that made the app, but also to Google and Facebook as well. So... That's scary. And so let me, let me read you what they found, uh, and then I'll run into the tip of the week, which is what uh, you can do about this to some degree. Again, from The Verge, it says, Free apps marketed to people with depression or who want to quit smoking are hemorrhaging user data to third parties like Facebook and Google, but often don't admit it in their privacy policy, a new study reports. This study is the latest to highlight the potential risks of entrusting sensitive health information to our phones. Though most of the easily found depression or smoking cessation apps in the Android and iOS stores share data, only a fraction of them actually disclose this. The findings add to the string of worrying revelations about what apps are doing with the health of the information we entrust to them. For instance, a Wall Street Journal investigation recently revealed the period tracking app Flow shared users' period dates and pregnancy plans with Facebook. And previous studies have reported health apps with security flaws or that shared data with advertisers and analytics companies. In this new study published Friday in the journal of uh, in the journal JAMA Network Open, researchers searched for apps using the keywords depression and smoking cessation. Then they downloaded the apps and checked to see whether the data put into them was shared by intercepting the app's traffic. This is actually breaking out here for a second. That's actually kind of like this IoT thing I told you about from Princeton. Basically, they're monitoring what these apps are doing in the background and who they're talking to. So anyway, back to the back to the article. It says. Much of the data the apps shared didn't immediately identify the user or was even strictly medical. But 33 of the 36 apps shared information that could, be, that could give advertisers or data analytics companies insights into people's digital behavior. And a few shared very sensitive information like health diary entries, self-reports about substance abuse, and usernames. 
Those kinds of details, plus the name or type of app, could give third parties information about someone's mental health that the person might want to keep private. Quote, even knowing that a user has a mental health or smoking cessation app downloaded on their phone is valuable health-related data, unquote, Quinn Grundy, an, an assistant professor at the University of Toronto who studies corporate influences on health and was not involved in the study, tells The Verge in an email. The fact that people might not know how their apps are sharing their data worried John Torres, director of digital psychiatry at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and co-author of the new study. Quote, it's really hard to make an informed decision about using an app if you don't even know who's going to get access to some information about you, he says. That's why he and the team at the University of New South Wales in Sydney ran this study. Quote, it's important to trust but verify, to say where is your health data going, unquote, Torres says. By intercepting the data transmission, they discovered that 92% of the 36 apps shared data with at least one third party, mostly Facebook and Google-run services that help with marketing, advertising, or data analytics. But about half of those apps didn't disclose that third-party data sharing for a few different reasons. Nine apps didn't have a privacy policy at all. Five apps did, but didn't say the data would be shared this way. And three apps actively said that this kind of data sharing wouldn't happen. Those last three are the ones that stood out to Stephen Chan, a physician at Veterans Affairs Palo Alto Healthcare System, who has collaborated with Taurus in the past, but it wasn't involved in this study. They're basically lying, he says. All right, and the article goes on, and they give a lot more data that's that's concerning. Basically, they found 36 different apps that were either targeted toward depression or smoking cessation, which is kind of an interesting combination. I'm not, <laughs> I don't know why they picked the smoking, smoking cessation ones, but anyway, they did. Uh, and in these 36 apps, they found that almost all of them shared data to some extent, and many of those that did didn't properly disclose that they were doing it, and in some cases didn't disclose it at all. Uh, I think only 25 of these apps even had a privacy policy. So it's just important to realize that your phone is chock full of sensors. You carry it with you everywhere. It knows your location. It has a microphone. It has a camera. Uh, it know, it has access to your contact lists, photos, um, all sorts of things, all sorts of information about you. Uh, and some of these apps that you install are really snitching on you. They're tattling on you. They're not only doing what they purport to do. Uh, the main reason you downloaded them because you're depressed or you want to quit smoking, but because that's the, these apps were probably free. And so they got to make money somewhere. Well, they don't have to, actually, you could just write this app and just put it out there and do it for free. You could do that. But if it's a company that wants to make money, like most companies do, and the app is free, then you are the product. And when we're talking about mental health apps in particular, I mean, that's some really, really sensitive data. And sharing that, again, even if they the app say we don't share your name or whatever, but if they do tell Facebook, hey, this guy downloaded I'm Really Depressed app, <laughs> that tells Facebook a lot, just knowing the app. And, of course, the apps probably are named other things too, but Facebook's smart enough to know what those apps are and who, who uses those apps and why they're using them. So just the very fact that you have this app and that app is giving up some information about you tells Facebook or Google or whoever that you're depressed. Or that you're trying to quit smoking. And that's valuable information because there's a lot of products that could be marketing towards you uh, to try to help you address those issues. So what do you do about this? Well, in the article, the, the, the one person said, trust but verify. Um, there's a lot of problems with that. First of all, I would just not trust. <laughs> uh, I don't know why you would trust some of these apps. I would, just, I would actually just assume that any app you install, certainly any free app you install, Unless it's from, you know, a, a truly consumer-centric 
altruistic type organization like the EFF or Epic or some of these other companies that are actually are doing these things for the good of doing them. Uh, I would just assume that they're at least telling Facebook and Google basic things about you, even if they're supposedly anonymous things or de-identified things, I would assume they were tattling on you. So I don't even know if I'd go so far as to say trust and verify. Um, and then there's the verify part. And the thing is you as a consumer really don't have any good way to verify. Can you read the privacy policy? Yeah, sure. You could. Um, but I just, <laughs> I just read an interesting article saying that, uh, I may get these backwards, but I think the iTunes terms of service was longer than Hamlet. Uh, and PayPal's was worse. PayPal's uh, terms of service, if you read all their privacy policies and such, uh, was longer than Macbeth. And the thing is, even if you did read, it's like 30,000, 36,000 words, even if you read all that, what are the chances that you're going to retain and understand what they're saying? First of all, it's probably a lot of legalese. Uh, second, they use all sorts of euphemistic terms to obfuscate what they're doing. And, you know, we're doing this for improving customer experience. How do they improve customer experience? Well, by monitoring everything you do and sending you relevant ads. That's how they're improving your customer experience. Um, so they couch it in all these kind of terms. They use these dark patterns to make it seem like they're doing things for you. And in reality, they're doing it for themselves uh, and to make money. So even if you wanted to verify and you wanted to read through those things, it's very hard for you to do. So tip of the week, that leads us to our tip of the week. What are you to do? Okay, well, right now, until we get some regulations in this country, um, in the U.S., of course, this is a global podcast, but in, in, the, in the U.S., where I'm sure my primary audience is, we don't have what the Europeans have. We don't have GDPR. Uh, we don't have regulations in place to protect consumers and give them control over their data, at least not yet. Um, I'm, I'm hearing rumors of, of bills coming to the forefront that might get signed. Who knows if they'll make it all the way to the president's desk and be signed there. But we're... We're finally turning a corner, I think, and it, we're, we're getting there. And, but until we do, until we have regulations and laws in place with some teeth, you're going to have to do the best you can by yourself. And that leads to the tip of the week. So what can you do? Not to sound like a broken record, but first and foremost, remove any apps that you don't use or don't need. Um, how many times have you downloaded that free app because it was free today? Or someone said, hey, you might want to try this out. You downloaded it once and never used it again. Your phone is probably cluttered with all sorts of these kind of apps. Go through and just ditch them. Get rid of them all. You can always download them again later if you change your mind. Um, if you've paid for it once, you don't have to pay for it again. Um, so first and foremost, get rid of the clutter. Do a spring cleaning. Now's the time. Go through your phone, for that matter, your computer, and remove any and all applications and any and all plugins, uh, add-ons, extensions uh, that you do not need or do not use. Take those out. That's just one less thing to worry about. Step one. Step two, for whatever's left, whatever applications you leave on your smartphones and your computers, look at their privacy settings. Go go into the preference and look for privacy and security. Um, turn off anything that says share data or improve my customer experience or improve my recommendations or um, targeted advertising, anything around those things. Just turn all that off. Obviously, at Google itself, when you're using the web browser, that's a whole different story. You'll need to go to Google and Facebook and those places and go to their individual privacy settings. But for now, let's focus on the apps. So for the apps themselves, make sure you've gone and looked at uh, all the privacy settings. Look at the permissions. Look at what things you've given them access to. Whenever you install an app on your phone, if they want to access certain things, they have to ask your permission. 
Uh, with Android, I think that's an iOS too. It only happens the first time you install it. Uh, so after that, if you said yes, you know, just said yes, 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 whatever, and did the install to begin with, now you've actually got to go back and and review what you said yes to, which you of course should have done in the first place. But uh, anyway, so go look at, uh, at at the privacy settings on your phone uh, in iOS and and Android. Look at whatever permissions you were given to these apps. For instance, if you've got a flashlight app, it doesn't need to know your location. Um, if you if you've got I don't know, some game, why does it need access to your contact list, uh, your address book? Turn these things off. Go back and remove and revoke any permissions that aren't absolutely needed. And if the app suddenly breaks and says, oh, hey, I can't do this thing because you turned off the permission, uh, evaluate what that thing is and if you really need it. Uh, And if so, then you can go back and reluctantly, maybe you can turn some of those things back on if it makes sense now. Oh, that's why it needed my address book. That sort of thing. Last but not least, because those terms of service are so ridiculous and so hard to read, uh, there is a new web service. Uh, well, not actually, it's not new anymore. It's been around for probably a couple of years now called Terms of Service Didn't Read, which is a take on an internet slang for too long didn't read. Uh, TLDR, too long didn't read, uh, is internet slang for like, here's the executive summary. If you don't want to read the whole thing, just read this, TLDR. Uh, so this other site, Terms of Service Didn't Read, which is TOS, Terms of Service, DR, didn't read, dot org, TOSDR.org. If you go to TOS.org, what these guys have tried to do is look at all the popular web services and, um, and, and, and web apps and rated them. But they've actually gone through, they've, done, they've gone through the painful process of reading through all their privacy policies and have rated them in ways that matter to you, um, not to them. So uh, kind of give you a thumbs up, thumbs down, or mediocre, and then some sort of an order, overall privacy score. Um, for each of these terms of service, how compromising these things are. So instead of trying to read them all yourself, you might want to check that website first. And I'll, of course, put that in the show notes, tosdr.org. And you can at least get a better layman's summary that is is not obfuscated, that is not in legalese, that is not using dark patterns to try to trick you into doing something. To, to explain what these terms of service are and what they mean and what the implications are for you. All right, that'll wrap up another show. Thanks for listening. Got some uh, important news this week. Uh, again, hopefully we'll have an interview set up for you next week. If not, I'll, I'm sure there will be plenty of news to cover and I'll be back with another new show. Check out my blog. Check out the newsletter. You can go to the website Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons to, to see those or sign up for that. You can also find information on my book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, which you can buy at Amazon or from APRESS, my publisher. Links to all that can be found on the website. I also keep a nice list on the website, uh, keep it updated with some great other resources you might want to check out, including Terms of Service Didn't Read, and several other great resources. And that'll wrap us up for the week. Until next week, stay safe out there, and don't get caught with your garbage down. <laughs>